Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Live Ninja Radio. I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and with me in the studio is Aurora. Hi. And Aurora, you spent some quality times quality time on a new lawnmower today. I did. You see, we have had a John Deere and it served us faithfully for about three years despite uh, you know, buying it used and things like that. Yes, we like to keep the lawn short, the grass short to keep the ticks on the perimeter away from the house. Exactly. And I was doing that last week and hit something hard. He ran over a rock. Several. <laughs> And somehow that just killed it. I've read for about 15 minutes after that, and nothing runs like a deer until it's been run by... A ninja. A lime ninja. <laughs> so anyway. All right. So now that you're caught up to date with what's happening here on our farm, let's get down to business. Alex Myers, our guest this week. Uh, she is. And why don't you tell us something about Alex? She's an impressive woman. Yes, she is. Alex Meyer earned an MBA at the College Graduate School of Management at Northwestern and spent nearly a decade in research and strategy for Fortune 100 companies. Hey, before you go on, did you say college graduate school or Kellogg? Kellogg. Okay, Kellogg Graduate School. Okay. okay. Uh, she spent 18 years with undiagnosed Lyme disease. Throughout the 1990s, Alex had been managing strange symptoms until a series of travel vaccinations left her severely disabled. She was sleeping for 15 to 16 hours a day and suffered from neurological effects that greatly reduced her comprehension abilities. And hang on right there. I just want to say I'm starting to hear more and more stories like this where somebody has mild symptoms and maybe they feel like they might have Lyme disease and things are kind of uh, stumbling along and then they have some sort of vaccination and bam, the wheels fall off the bus. They really feel terrible. So it's the vaccination that triggers kind of a reoccurrence or an explosion of the Borrelia. And it can happen five years, 10 years after the initial tick bite, kind of when they go back and figure out when they were first bitten by a tick. So it's it's an interesting thing. When you're stressed in some way, and obviously uh, and a, a vaccination is a stress, but any sort of stress like that can really kick up the level of illness or kick down or make things worse. Make things worse. Make things much worse. Yep. Anyway. So, anyway. So beware. Yep. If, you're, if you've got Lyme, you want to seriously consider whether or not to get vaccinated. You have to weigh the pros and cons of that with your doctor uh, before just blindly going forward. All right. All right. Back to Alex's resume. All right. Uh, she was forced to leave her job after these vaccinations as a global research manager for Apple in 1996 to focus on her health. In 1999, before she received her Lyme diagnosis, she, she switched over to a gluten-free diet, which made a large portion of her symptoms vanish. From that point on, she says, quote, I turned my research lens from corporate research to personal health and launched her blog, Med Nauseam, to stop bugging my friends and family about emails about natural health. Uh, today, she is a health coach and writer, an editor for Med Nauseam, Inspiro Chicks, and a nonprofit development consultant. All right. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Alex Meyer. Hi, it's Alex. Alex, hello. It's McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hi, McKay. How are you doing? Quite well. Thanks. Good. Good to hear it. So, 
Let's talk Lyme disease. Absolutely. Looking um, forward to that. So tell me, um, tell me about your listenership. Are they, um, is it patients and doctors? You know, I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll just talk to who uh, we assume will be listening. Right. I don't, I haven't surveyed them and I don't have a lot of interaction with them. Um, at this point, right. I haven't built that into and built that up yet. That's kind of like the next phase. I think it's pretty much people with chronic Lyme. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I think you've got great, fantastic content for people with chronic Lyme. I've been listening to some of your shows and I'm just blown away. You've got great guests and great content. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. And you're going to so, add um, right to that. <laughs> well, I sure hope so. Do you want to talk to me as more of like a patient and my experience or um, from my experience as a health coach or as the co-founder of SpiroChicks blog, etc.? Yes, yes, and yes. All of it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's important because I just think it's important. Yeah. It's important for people to hear your story, you know, that there's a, some hope fighting through it. Um, and I also think you also offer, because of all the research you've done and the writing that yeah. you've done, that you know you're you're one of the patients, and there seem to be quite a few of them who really just dive both feet in and learn so much and have so much to share. Yeah, so, that's and right. It, and it's not theoretical. You know, you you're 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 going through it. You know, that's and, right. So. Yeah, and in my story, I can tell you, you know, why I became one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> so, so actually, let's start there. So, okay, how did you? We'll talk about how you the Lyme and your experience with that a little bit later on. But how did you go from, I mean, a sexy corporate job with Apple, you know, probably the most exciting corporation in the world right now? Yeah, working with them to doing a, it's not necessarily a 180, but then going, you know, I'm going to go off into health. And it's interesting that kind of Apple now is heading into the health, you know, with the iWatch and all that other kind of data-driven stuff. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a good point. They kind of are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe there's another job for me there someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was so fun working in Apple. That was my dream job. So to answer your question, I um. I got my MBA at um, Kellogg at Northwestern, and I just set my sights on working for Apple Computer. That's all I wanted to do because I just thought it was such a great company. And I had um, a deep background in uh, market research and strategy, and they hired me based on that, not because I you know, was any kind of genius in high tech. And so I ended up doing research and strategy for Apple for about five years. And... What happened is that I'd had a tick bite prior to business school, actually, and it kind of just been middling, like going through really weird symptoms, like um, alternating sinus and bladder infections and mm. kind of some weird like food allergies, what I thought was going on with food allergies and digestive issues. But I was getting by. I was, you know, working at this job at Apple, and ultimately I was promoted to the acting manager of a worldwide customer research group. Wow. And... I was loving life. I mean, here I was at my dream company, my dream job, doing what I loved, but I was always managing these symptoms. And 
then I scheduled a trip to go to Bali with some family members and I got a bunch of travel vaccines. Mm-hmm. And a couple weeks later, mm-hmm. I became disabled and I have never felt 100% since those vaccines. Now, how many, I know traveler, you can get many, many, many. How many vaccines did you get? I don't remember how many. I definitely had the hepatitis B vaccine. Yep. And that's the one that I think took me down. Hmm. And so I I arrived in Bali a couple weeks later after those vaccines and my family thought I had the worst jet lag ever. And, you know, it lasted right. like a week. I was sleeping 15 hours a day wow. and never feeling restored at all. And it just seemed really abnormal compared to what my other family members felt like. Right. And then we were at an event in Bali and I just, I, my legs buckled under me and I just collapsed. And from there forward, you know, I was sleeping for 15, 16 hours a day for the next three years. And for the next six months after that, I actually, you know, I returned from the trip and, you know, went back to work at Apple, but I, I started working shorter and shorter days because if you're sleeping 15 or 16 hours a day, yeah. you know, can you actually work? <laughs> no. <laughs> and it's, no, it turned out the answer was no, I couldn't because the other things I was dealing with when I was awake were, you know, extreme fatigue, cognitive fatigue, digestive issues, um, arthritis, a migraine headache that was just 24 seven. Mm. And I just, you know, I had a job that depended on my brain and all of a sudden I realized that I couldn't understand what I was reading anymore. I picked up, you know, the MBA's favorite journal, which is the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> and I couldn't understand any of the articles. Really? And the, yeah, I, I mean, I literally would read a sentence and I'd start reading the beginning of it. And by the time I got to the end of the sentence, I had no idea what I'd read. And after like two or three articles on this particular day, I thought, God, you know, there's some really bad writers today. <laughs> really? <laughs> I didn't put it together that it was me. So when did it and, do- when did it dawn on you that it was you and not the Wall Street Journal? Well, I kept reading more articles, and all of a sudden, I'm like, Oh my god, the common denominator is me. I don't understand any of the articles today. And all of a sudden, I'm like, You know what? This is too much of a struggle. I can't do my job anymore. And so that's when I had to go in and take a medical leave of absence. So did that scare you, or is it just confusing? It was. It was frightening because I, you know, I'd been in my dream job and I loved what I was doing. I loved working at Apple. It was the most fun I'd ever, I'd ever had. And we were doing great things. We were accomplishing great things. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just, I didn't want to step off my career path and I didn't want to leave Apple, but I really had no choice at that point because I was, I was practically brain dead. Well, yeah. Functionally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the transformation to kind of a, a health and medical researcher and writer happened at about that time because a few years into it, and I spent, gosh, like two or three years with all those symptoms I just described, you know, the excessive sleep and the migraines, the arthritis, the digestive problems. And three years into it, I went on a gluten-free diet and all of a sudden my digestive problems were gone. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, all the inflammation that had been causing my arthritis was gone. My headache dropped down from a migraine every day to kind of a moderate headache every day, which was, you know, pretty manageable. Right. So my cognitive abilities came back. Hmm. Um, I started sleeping less. I was still sleeping like maybe 11 hours a day, but that was way more functional than 15 to 16. Right. And I felt like, oh my God, you know, this is not my 100% solution, but this is most of it. Yeah. Um, 
And I had to know why. And that's when I took my corporate research lens and I turned it personal. And I said, why? I just said, why is the gluten-free diet working so well for me? What is going on here? So who did you, yeah, who did you start reading? Oh my gosh, back then? Yeah. Can you remember? (laughs) I don't even, honestly, I don't even remember. Okay. It was a lot of books because the internet wasn't such a big thing back then. This was in the late 90s. So was it the paleo people? I mean, they were starting back then, right? No, there was no paleo back then. So um, Kressler oh, I know. Well, they had There was Dr. Kenneth Fine at Intero Lab. Huh. He was doing kind of some uh, early stool testing. Uh, so he was a big influence. Um, I can't remember who else I was reading at that time. Oh, Dr. Perlmutter. David Perlmutter was big into the gluten-free diet. Yep. Um, and then there was a Dr. Haji Vasilu, <laughs> who was... <laughs> Doing research on the connection between um, gluten and neurological issues. Ah. Yeah, and then, oh, gosh, there was another really good book back then. Oh, my gosh, I can't remember what it was. Grain, Serial Killers, was it called, or Grain Brain? Well, Grain Brain's more recent. That's um, more recent. Yeah, so it may have been Serial Killers. Yeah, it might have been Serial Killer or Serial Killers, but um, it just really opened up my eyes. And then um, I started, because <laughs> gluten is related to so many inflammatory conditions and autoimmune yes, conditions exactly. and neurological conditions, yep. I started emailing all my friends and family members like, did you know that your MS could be reversed on a gluten-free diet? <laughs> and <laughs> I think I really started to annoy people. Yes. They so, said, thanks for sharing, however. <laughs> exactly. So that's when I decided, okay, you know what? People can self-select if they want to read my uh, stuff or not, and I'm going to start a blog. And that's when I started a blog called Med Nauseam, based on the word ad nauseum, yes. but for medical stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. And so yeah. and so let's rewind a little bit there, too. So, you know, you're kind of bumping along with mild kind of normal-ish symptoms from time to time. You're managing yourself. You know, you're not great, but you're getting along. You get these vaccines mm-hmm. before your trip to Bali and just the wheels come off the cart. And, exactly. You know, you're just clearly fighting off, you know, your immune system is just struggling and you just need every bit of energy just to work your immune system. So you're just exhausted. That's right. Now you come back mm-hmm. from Bali. So what medical path did you take? Are you seeing doctors? Did you just give up? You know, were you a, not in granola person and don't want to ever see a doctor again. <laughs> I, I had already been seeing a lot of doctors, so I started seeing more and, um, you know, the, the autoimmunity flag was raised and they, you know, I got misdiagnosed with lupus and yeah. then did they give you steroids? Could, yes. Uh, sorry. Yeah, I know. So then things got worse, of course. Yep. And then I was misdiagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome <laughs> And I didn't put two and two together on the travel vaccines until much, much later. But in retrospect, when I saw that, yes, I'd had a bullseye rash in 1991, Uh got the travel vaccines in 1996, Mm -hmm. and I realized that from 91 to 96, I'd had all these really weird symptoms. And it had the classic Lyme onset in the summer of 1991 of, um, you know, the bullseye rash, as I said, and then I started getting like night sweats. I got digestive problems and did you get a fever? You know, and, did and you get flu symptoms after you got bit or just the rash? 
I did. I got a summer flu, yeah. and I remember yeah. going out with my friends, and they were drinking beer, and I'd order hot water, <laughs> and a bear flew into it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't give up easily. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's that's my story, except for the going out and drinking beer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same sort I don't of drink beer anymore. yeah, bullseye rash, summertime, and I was just lucky enough to, um, kind of have a little bit of a background and knew Lyme disease existed. Um, you know, didn't know anything about it, and went off to the ER, and they gave me a two week pack of um, doxycycline, and it was enough to. You know, I was young enough and healthy enough to kind of get over the hump. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think I still have symptoms that kind of peak up from time to time. Um, but, yeah, I'm not surprised. Because yeah, 40% but, of people who take the standard two weeks of doxy will end up with chronic Lyme. Yeah. And, you and know. from John Alcott. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, it definitely didn't get enough treatment at the time. You know, I did some follow-up things with um, an acupuncture, so I got some herbal stuff and some acupuncture treatments, and that probably helped also. Um, but I'm, I consider sure. myself super, 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 super lucky. Um, yeah. Because, you know, so many other times, you know, it, it'll quiet things down for uh, a month, three months, six months, and then all of a sudden it comes back with a vengeance. Mm. Kind of after the. That's really cyclical. Yeah, you know, after the after the the cysts or whatever form kind of hides out and the danger for them's passed and they come back out and recolonize. Um mm-hmm. you know, you, you hear That's that right. story over and over again. That's right. Uh, yeah, what to do about the cysts is the big question, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. So the, you I'm know either somebody now. yeah somebody will figure out, figure out some maybe nanotechnology kind of thing to deliver you know an antibiotic or some herb or something to to knock it out or we'll just you know keep working on building up the immune system and taking away other irritants for some people it's gluten for some people it's you know whatever it is and That's uh, right. you know so you're so when it does reappear your body can can fight. Can't that's the thing, yeah, to get the body strong and to reduce your inflammation as much as possible. Yeah. That's right. Um, you know, there's a treatment I've been pursuing lately. I've been getting arkesinate pushes. Um, What's that? And that is that? supposedly a, a cyst buster. Ah. So what is it exactly? It's based on the herb artemisinin, which okay. is an alternative malaria treatment. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that um, they think that that will kill cysts. So we shall see. Cool. In my practice, I use uh, herbal blends. They're called classical pearls. And I Hmm. can't pronounce the man who formulates them. I can't pronounce his name. He's on my list to to have an interview with. um, Hmm. So kind of the, the old herbal treatments, they all, you know, have some effect you know, whether it's breaking down the biofilm or, you know, maybe they've, they'll find something that gets into the cysts or helps the immune system get in the cyst. That's right. You know? That's right. And, the, and then, and, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, and then the other thing I like about herbal formulas is, uh, especially the traditional Chinese blends, is that they'll also concentrate on keeping your strength up, um, you know, keeping your spirits up. So it's not only that you're going after and trying to kill the bugs or the cysts or, you know, whatever forms in you, but it's also working on keeping you healthy and strong at the same time. 
And, that is uh, so true. You know, that is so true. And I know Lyme literate doctors do that in many different ways, but just the, the Chinese system is, is so elegant. And so they've worked it out over hundreds and thousands of years. And it's, it's good stuff. I couldn't agree more. You now, know way more about it than I do, but I totally agree. And, and you do essential oils as well, yeah? I do. Yeah. Um, so when it, that's a more recent thing, but when I, when I started my treatment, um, well, when I finally did get diagnosed with Lyme disease, it was years later, it was like 18 years after my tick bite. Ouch. Um, yeah. I, um, you know, I'd been in the medical system for so long and, you know, in my world, vaccines had hurt me. Steroids had hurt me. Mm-hmm. Gluten-free diet had helped me. So mm-hmm. it's kind of, it was starting to be this dichotomy between like, you know, pharmaceutical things that were either neutral or negative for me and natural things and herbs that ended up being neutral to positive. Right. Um, but, you know, I was willing to do almost anything once I got diagnosed with Lyme because, like everybody, we want to get it out of our system as quickly as possible. Yeah. So I picked up the phone and I started calling, networking around and calling other patients and finding out what they had used. And it turned out that among the people I called, anybody who'd used antibiotics said that they finally stopped and had switched to an herbal protocol and were so much better. Right. And that was a consistent theme among almost everyone I called, and they all said Chinese herbs were the ticket for them. Hmm. And so I thought, wow, well, why would I want to do antibiotics if I'm just going to end up on Chinese herbs? Why don't I just do something that's going to build up my immune system, as you said, mm-hmm. and not give me the risk of cancer somewhere down the line and not ruin my gut flora? Right. Um, well, that's the... And so that was... Yeah, that was the way I decided to go, and it was really successful for me. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk back and I'm gonna put in a plug for antibiotics because um, at some of these really acute phases, um, yes. there's nothing stronger. There's no Chinese herb mixture that's as strong as some of these antibiotics and targeted. So they can be right. incredibly useful. However, like you said, they, they've got a lot of collateral damage. They don't have they do. any balancing herbs or balancing substances in there to help you survive the antibiotic. And they do wreck your gut. And like in your case, your gut was wrecked from whatever. Yeah. And, and the gluten-free exactly. diet helped restore it so much that your health came back so much. So if you're taking a treatment, you know, that's saving your life, but in the long term, you know, it's almost like smoking. It's like a lot of my smokers, I don't have that many of them, but I have a few patients who smoke. And in the short term, it's it's medicine for them. Either it's warming their lungs or helping them breathe deeply or taking care of stress or something like that. Hmm. But in the end, they're going to it's going to kill them. And. You know, right. And they know this, but it's so hard to get off it, not only because of normal addiction stuff, but because they feel worse when they stop. You know, their that's right. Their lungs aren't as good. I've had patients who get bronchitis. They actually get sicker when they get off the, uh, you know, and then people dealing with stress is like their whole lives go to, anyway, someplace not nice. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, I can't say that I'm against antibiotics for everybody, but for me, for my personal equation, yep. they were not going to be part of my long-term treatment. Yeah, exactly. At I th- all. Exactly. They're just right. I, I think they're they've got their places, and even to come back and visit them is fine. But for a long-term or a chronic application, there's so many different things, and including the essential oils. That uh, one of my mentors, or I should say, my mentor Greg Lee, who's an acupuncturist uh, in Western Maryland, in Frederick, Maryland. He uses essential oils quite a bit, and he's been using them in liposomal preparations. 
Oh, right. So they get absorbed differently, wrapped up in little tiny bits of lecithin. And some yes. of some of the uh, the biofilm colonies will absorb these fats directly, and then so the essential oil not only can break down the outer coating of the biofilm, but once once it's taken inside liposomally, then it can really uh, really do some damage to the to the lime. The right, lime and that's the brilliance. That's the brilliance of essential oils because they have their you know they're naturally antibiotic. I call them like plantibiotics. Absolutely, one of my yep. words. <laughs> But yeah, that fat delivery system is amazing, especially if you think about Lyme, that goes it goes intracellular, right? It acts kind of like a virus and goes inside your cells, and the cells can take in lipids. Yes. So yeah, it's just it's amazing. It's it's the bug killer and the delivery system all in one. Yeah. So he's he's had some very very good luck with that, um, and in, in terms, so he uses the the liposomes. You do a blender and then you do an ultrasonic machine to break them up even to smaller pieces. Um, so he uses Chinese herbs that way. He uses essential oils that way. Um, and then some glutathione and vitamin C as well. Uh, and it's all, oh, wow. it's all a very interesting way to deliver. Um, the cancer community uses quite a bit of vitamin C and glutathione. Right. So they've, they were, I think, the ones who've really pioneered that and we're just borrowing from them. Thank God for cancer people <laughs> in some ways. Did you I am. See- when I go to get my treatment, I go to an IV room once a month still. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, every other patient, it's like Lyme cancer, Lyme cancer, Lyme cancer all around wow. the room. And what IVs do you get? Well, my home run um, that I just hit on, you know, kind of in the past year is a combination of ozone and UVBI, which is ultraviolet blood irradiation, and really? then this artesanate. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just do been they, a home run for me. Do they irradiate your blood? Is yes. it like a trans? So it's like a kidney thing. So they just run it through the UV light. Yeah, exactly. Ah, that makes yeah, so and, much uh, sense. It does. It it kills. Uh, it's it's such a broad spectrum thing. That's yeah. actually that's where I am now. I'm only using the most broad spectrum treatments, and herbs are broad spectrum. Yes. Antibiotics will kill bacteria or prevent them from reproducing. But herbs are broad spectrum. So if there's a viral component of Lyme, which right. I think that there is. Or fungal um, or, right. Or fungal. Yep. Right. It'll kill that too. And ozone is broad spectrum and UVBI is broad spectrum. So since I don't believe Lyme is just bacterial, so <laughs> I'm never going to use anything ever again that is only an antibacterial. So tell me what brought you to that point. Huh. Um, well, I've been doing research for, Mm -hmm. um, uh, a book chapter, a very long academic book chapter that I'm writing with, um, a Stanford professor. And I don't know when it's going to be finished, but, um, we've made a lot of headway into it. And as I've been researching Lyme, I've been doing a lot of research on different strains and, um, diagnostics and testing. And one of the research articles I came across, and this is indexed in PubMed, and this piece I'm about to tell you is right up there in the abstract of this study. Um, they've sequenced um, strain B31, which is the strain used in lab testing for Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And there are sequences of two viruses in strain B31. Huh. So <laughs> is Lyme bacterial? If there are two viruses that have been sequenced as part of the DNA of strain B31. 
or is Lyme part bacteria, part virus? And does that explain why it could go intracellular? Very, very interesting. Kind of a showstopper. It stopped my show. (laughs) (laughs) So as soon as I read that, I I thought, wow, why would I ever use something that's not broad spectrum enough Mm. to get viruses and bacteria? That's really true. My thinking on that up to this conversation had been that either the viruses tagged along with it or that you just had opportunistic viruses are, that you're already infected with. And they kind of got together and formed a gang and attacked you. Yeah, I think that's true as well. I think that mine is, you know, suppresses your immune system. Yeah. And, you know, we never get rid of viruses. So when your immune system is depressed, any viruses in you are going to be more active. So you're absolutely correct. But if this bacteria has also been invaded by a virus and the virus Mm -hmm. is living off the host bacteria, that that makes things very, very interesting. Doesn't it? Yeah. And maybe that explains why there's so many different forms of it. Right. Yeah, there's been a lot of... um, Let's say cross pollination. <laughs> yeah, well, <that's> what, <laughs> of different strains over yeah, the years. That's what life does, and that's you know, and that's some of the infuriating things. I have this patient coming in for a different problem, um, and he's been all over the country being tested and going, and essentially they throw up their hands and say, "We we're not sure what you have." And in this fifteen year journey he's gone through, he has been tested for Lyme three times. And one time came back positive and still, mm. you know, not treated for it. But the, the ah. testing is so limited. Like, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, they know flu comes in different strains each year. And they try to guess which ones are coming through and put in the vaccine. You know, some years are better than others, blah, blah, blah. But then That's how, right. how come there's so much resistance that, okay, we've got, you know, a test for one strain of this bacteria. And if you don't have this one strain... And all the, you know, enough of the the DNA strands in it, then you don't have it. It's, it's the, That's why, right. In, well, your, you, in your research and your reading, why is the physician's mind, and maybe the researchers too, so closed to this disease? What happened? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think that, as you mentioned, the diagnostic tests are terrible. And the strain really does matter. And this is actually kind of like tapped into one of my favorite topics lately, which is the um, Lyme disease strain, Lyme disease strain. And um, I think that the diagnostics are the reason that people are so, or doctors are so resistant to diagnose it. Um, Number one, the diagnostics are just based on antibodies. So there's no test that within a couple weeks can tell you whether or not they found the actual organism. You know, there's a, um, a testing company called Advanced Labs and they can do a culture test of your blood and I think your tissue. And, you know, over the course of 10 and I think maybe up to 12 months, they'll see if a spirochete will culture and they can get DNA from it. But that's not, you know, that's not going to help somebody who needs an immediate diagnosis. Right. So the only thing we have available to us are these antibody tests, which is measuring, you know, our immune system's reaction to Something. an organism. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, first of all, it's an antibody test. And so people can say, oh, well, you know, antibodies, and those can cross-react with other things. Like, you know, in the Lyme disease, in Western blot testing, there's band 41, 
well, if you have E. coli, then band 41 can be positive. Right. So that's what it means to say it cross-reacts. So it doesn't, it's not specific for Lyme disease. So there's a lot of discounting of the test. Number one, because it's an antibody test. Number two, because some of the bands cross-react with other things. Um, so that adds a lot of difficulty. And then number three, I think the biggest reason is, as you mentioned, there's an issue with the strain. So from my research that I've done, um, the lab reference strain is strain B31. And the, the test is based on two different strains. So the Western blot test has, has two parts to it. There's an IgG and an IgM. Mm-hmm. And IgM measures um, a recent immune response, and then you're supposed to zero convert and have an IgG response right. to the organism. So the IgM part of the Western blot test is the criteria are based on strain 297. And that's from a study by Engstrom that was published in 1994, I believe. Um, the criteria for IgG are based on a strain called G3940. And that's from a Dressler Steer study that was published in 1993. Okay? So those are the criteria that are used to interpret the test. Those are, you know, those determined which bands would be positive and which bands would count for a diagnosis of Lyme disease. And in the case of IgM, you have to be positive on two of the five bands. And in the case of IgG, you have to be positive on five of the ten bands. Right. Okay? Now, the... (laughs) There's a third different strain that's used as the lab reference strain. Okay. So how how does that work? So what you're, you're uh, to translate this down is what you're saying is the tests aren't even internally consistent. Right. So why why weren't the criteria based on the lab strain? Why not see what bands are expressed by strain B31 if that's going to be our lab strain mm-hmm. and use those as the criteria? Mm-hmm. You know? Don't know. It's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Let's like ask somebody. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, messed, it's a little bit messed up. And then the other thing is I was looking at some studies from Gary Wormser of what strains are commonly found in people. Right. And the only studies I could find are studies done um, on the East Coast and I think Westchester County. And he found that the most common strain that people have that causes illness is strain 297. Mm-hmm. And the second most common, that's in 30% of people in Westchester County. Right. And the next most common strain is B31, which was in 15% of people in Westchester County. Right. So why is B31 the lab strain if that's not the most common one in people? (laughs) Good question. Some some more showstoppers. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's no, there's no good answer. It's like, that's just what got set up. You know, right. that's somebody was doing the work and they set up the test for that and they got that accepted as the standard and the the infrastructure gets, you know, it's like, how come we can't switch over from gasoline to natural gas? Well, we've got 10 billion gas stations around, you know, exactly. and the infrastructure, exactly. everybody's, you know, knows how to fill up their own tank with gas. All of a sudden you try and switch it over. It just, it's not that simple. So, exactly. you know, there's exactly. Well, I do have to do a plug for Igenex because, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there, you know, always seem to be steeped in controversy, but the controversy really shouldn't be there because Igenex is the only lab that I know of in the United States that uses two strains exactly. as its reference strain. Yes. It uses B31 and 297. So between those two and 
and given that strains can cross-react with other strains, they can identify more cases of Lyme disease. And so be- between those two strains, um, you know, if you're a patient on the East Coast, you know, that's 45% of the strains that will infect people. That's, that's better. It's a lot better. And so, yeah. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't think Igenix deserves all of the, the scrutiny it gets because it's, it's a better lab. Well, they're swimming upstream. They're essentially calling out the, the Western blot test and saying it's inferior. Right. You know, so it becomes, you know, it's a Coke or Pepsi deal. Exactly. Ra- rather than, exactly. A, than a science deal. You know, the science. Right. Or like, or VCR and Betamax. Yeah. <laughs> if your listeners are as old as I am, <laughs> they're the Betamax. Yeah. <laughs> it was my, better, but. My, fan, my dad had standard. the Betamax, right. He's, he, my, God love him, but he always chose the losing side on that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Be- better quality, but anyway. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, so you got me off on my, my little strange spiel. I love it. I can't, I can't wait to read this and what's the entire book about? Um, well, the book is a little bit different. It's not an expose, even though I'm, I'm finding some stuff that might make you think it's an expose. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's actually an attempt to bring the two sides together because there are two yeah. warring sides in Lyme disease. There's the people who ascribe to the IDSA treatment guidelines, which led to you getting two weeks of doxycycline, yep, and leads to almost forty percent of people having chronic Lyme, chronic symptoms, and and then there's ILAS, which advocates longer-term treatment to reduce the number of people who fail treatment. Right. And those two sides are still at war. And so what we're trying to do is actually bring them together. It's about scientific collaboration. And so we're looking at all the most recent literature and putting it into um, a model, um, a paradigm change model. And so we're trying to show... um, how the paradigm in Lyme disease is changing and when this new emerging paradigm represented by ILAD might actually become the dominant one. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the IDSA will, (laughs) I'm reminded of some of, I forget who, who wrote this, but they're talking about Max Planck and the physicists at the turn of the century and going from classical physics to quantum physics and all this kind of stuff. And the, the commentary is essentially, well, you have to wait till the old guys die out before a new idea can, can take hold. You know, yeah. is this some, is this a marriage that can, that, that we can shotgun or is this just going to be a matter of attrition and we'll just have to wait for the predom- predominance of, uh, results and, and data to f- finally just overwhelm and let the, the old guard die off. And, you know, the guys, mm. the younger people, I won't just say guys, the younger people with, uh, more open minds adopt it. I mean, obviously, right. I mean, it's a, it's a setup question because you're doing the work. So what, what, let's right. ask it this way. What gives you hope that that can happen? In my crystal ball? <laughs> <laughs> no, your, your heart and your spirit and your, your optimism. Um, yeah, I, I am optimistic um, that it, it won't take this attrition and die off that you talked about. Um, although that's, that is usually how it happens. Um there is stuff that gives me optimism, but yeah, I, I can't predict when it's going to happen. I, I have to leave it at that. Yeah. So what's, what positive signs do you see? 
there are some positive signs. I'm, I'm, I'm privy to some um, kind of private information that I can't share, but um, That's what you let can, me just say that there, yeah, you can leave there it are that. some positive yeah. Yeah, there's some positive signs that are are brewing, and um, the changes. It's it's happening. It's happening now. Okay, great. That's, yeah, I mean that's that would be a miracle. And that'd be a welcome miracle. Yes, it not, absolutely would be. Not business as usual. That's for sure. Right. Okay. So, lastly, as we wrap up, you've been very generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. You sharing your experience and your knowledge. Um, oh, my pleasure. You're welcome. So you're, I mean, part of what you do, not only is the research and and the writing, but you're also a health coach. So you talk with patients and people with, with Lyme disease and other chronic problems. What's your favorite tool in your toolbox and what help, you know, what do people really need to take seriously to get better? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, let me just say that most people come to me because they want help kind of navigating all the resources, whether it be doctors or other types of healthcare practitioners or um, just different resources for um, herxing or detoxing mm. or all that stuff. Mm. Um, but there's also a group of patients who come to me for just help managing their life and their relationships when you have Lyme disease because everything just goes out the window. I mean, people who you thought were your friends are no longer your friends. Family members who you thought would always support you don't support you anymore. Um, and it's just I, sometimes the psychological trauma of how people treat you when you've been so sick for so long is almost worse than the physical disease. So we work a lot on that stuff. And one of the things I like to do with people is um, help them identify um, two main types of people in their lives. Mm-hmm. And those are the advocates and the releasers. And, you know, I think everybody needs a warm up band. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that like <laughs> big rock stars, they're not the only ones that need a warm up band. I think we all need a warm up band and the warm up band in a, in a Lyme patient's life are the people who are closest to them who identify most with their suffering and believe in their suffering and believe that the patient is doing everything they can to get out of it. Right. And those are the people you actually need to cultivate. You actually have to have an active conversation with them and say, say to them that I need you to represent me and what I'm going through to other people in our lives. Because as it turns out, the other people in your life, they don't want to hear that you're struggling. They don't want to hear about your symptoms. They don't want to hear about your next weird treatment that you're doing. Right. But if you've got an advocate who really believes in you and can say, you know, gosh, you know, my loved one is really struggling and boy, she is working so hard and trying so hard to heal herself. Then the people around you start to get on board a lot more easily. Hmm. But you have to have that active conversation. You can't just think that those advocates are going to happen. Right. And sometimes they do. And it turns out those are the patients who get treated the best. Like it's usually like a teenager with a parent who's automatically their advocate. And those teenagers just, they, they're treated the best out of anybody. But adults who lose their career and their job and don't have a diagnosis, all of a sudden people just assume they're a malingerer and they never lose that reputation. Right. Um, and the other people in your life are people who, you know, just, 
don't have it in them to be your advocate. They might be a brother or sister, even a parent Mm -hmm. or a really good friend. And I call them the releasers. And you can have a releasing conversation with them and say, you know, listen, I know it's really hard for you to hear about what I'm going through. And, you know, if I were in the hospital and I, if I were dying and if it were just too hard for you to come in and visit me every day, I would, I would release you. I would allow you just to say, you know, just say goodbye. And if it's too hard for you, just say goodbye now. And that's, that's fine with me. And I found that having those conversations with the people close to you actually brings about the opposite response, usually, of what you expect. And if you just say, you know, listen, I release you. I, I'm not going to talk to you about what I'm going through anymore, but I'm also not going to be able to see you because, you know, seeing you involves explaining my diet sometimes and it, it involves explaining why I have to get up late and it, explains, it involves explaining why I have to take supplements at the meal and you seem to judge me for all those things. So I release you from you know, having to be here for me. You can, you know, we can come back together at another point in our lives when you're, when you're more ready to accept what I'm going through mm-hmm. and you will believe the responses people get. So like what happens? Give me a story with well, obviously the these names. people, these people that you think you're going to release come just immediately say like, Oh, Oh my God. No, I want the opposite. I want to understand more. <laughs> you know, I, I want to really be there for you. And, mm-hmm. The majority of the time, you'll actually end up having that opposite response. So you bring them to the to the uh, warm up band side, yeah. They, yeah, and and then they have the opportunity to be your warm up band. But usually, if somebody, if you know somebody is a releaser, uh huh, they're not really ready to be part of your warm up band. Okay, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but you can not... have them in your life. So then, what? So instead of kind of pushing against you, they're just kind of neutral. Is that what the shift is? Yeah. Just, just get them to quit pushing against you. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Because it's so negative. It's so bad for your recovery. Oh, it's awful. It's one more yeah. strain. I mean, rela- yeah. relationship drama is painful enough, but when you're sick too? Yeah. It's impossible. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, and those are a few things you have learned along the way from different, I've seen a lot of um, counselors for all these issues and you know, just called together these different ideas and the idea of, you know, identifying your advocates and your releasers has been a really big, powerful one. That's fabulous. I love it. (laughs) Good. All right, Alex. Thanks again for your time. Um, It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Um, Absolutely. I just uh, subscribed to your, updates your newsletter so i can't wait to hear uh more about this project this book and uh where you decide to go in the future great well me too i don't know where i'm going to go in the future at this point (laughs) (laughs) but there's gonna be more research and more writing and more health coaching i know that okay fabulous (laughs) thanks okay it's been great talking to you yes we'll catch up soon sounds great okay bye-bye alex bye So Alex had a great point at the beginning of that interview. Which point was that? Uh, We don't actually know who a lot of Ah, the people who listen to us are. That point. Yeah. She's absolutely right. Yeah, and she was already like a good marketing research person, all ready to tailor her content to our audience. She totally was going to do that. And then I stumped her by saying, I don't know. (laughs) She she was shocked and amazed. She was. We don't quite have the resources of Apple Computer. (laughs) <laughs> so we go, don't can't do surveys or have not done surveys of people. But 
Maybe we can. Actually, let's do our own impromptu survey right now. Let's do this. So please answer this question. Who are you? <laughs> and send an email to... Feedback at LymeNinjaRadio.com. Yeah, just a few lines of who you are and why you're interested in Lyme disease. I'd yeah. love it. And maybe we can get a half dozen responses and get an idea who's out there. Yeah. It's like, are you suffering from Lyme disease yourself? Are you a practitioner? Exactly. Do you know anybody who's suffering from Lyme disease? So, What's going on? Shoot us a short email. Just a short one. It doesn't have to be super long. Just a few lines. Let us know who you are. I'll respond personally to everyone who writes in, I promise. And the email address again is feedback at limeninjaradio.com. Feedback at limeninjaradio.com. Not got com. Dot com. <laughs> All right. Look forward to hearing from you, and we'll be on the air next week. And before we go, ah, oh, I forgot. The Lime Ninja fact of the day. Aurora, what is the Lime Ninja fact of the day? Did you know ninjas don't pocket dial the wrong number? You answer the wrong phone. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.